Derek, Derek, Derek. Diamond, Diamond, Diamond. Experience! And welcome to another fantastic episode of the Derek Diamond Experience podcast for the week of October 13th, 2014. I am your host, Derek Diamond, and coming up on today's show, you will be hearing my conversation with writer, director, and producer of film, Mr. Steve Wise. I met Steve back in January at the Filmmakers Meet and Greet that I've mentioned several times on this show. He was there on behalf of Kinematic Entertainment looking for film crew members for Pensacon. So I got to work with him and other staff members of Kinematic during the convention. And Steve and I have also worked together on set for The Actor Factor and on the upcoming commercial for Pensacon 2015, which I believe is just about finished shooting and should be released uh, fairly soon. But I know there's not a specific date set for that, I believe. But Steve is someone that I've wanted to have on the podcast for quite a while now because he just has so much knowledge and experience when it comes to film. And we talked about what made him want to go into film. We talked about Jaws, Star Wars, uh, Pensacon, obviously, his experience with working on it last year and some things that are planned for Pensacon 2015. And you'll also get to hear a crazy story about how he pitched a Batman script to Warner Brothers that I can't wait for you guys to hear. It's it's just fantastic. And one final thing before we get to Steve, once again, I would like to thank the Unicorn Wranglers for allowing me to use their song Twin Peaks as the official theme song of the Derek Diamond Experience. And they actually have a show coming up on Friday, October 24th. It's going to be held at the Grunge Bar here in Pensacola, Florida. It's located on Navy Boulevard. And they'll be playing at 9.30 p.m., so if you live in Pensacola, definitely check them out. And even if you don't, make the drive. It's worth it. They're an awesome band. And if you want to find out more information about them, if you want to hear some of their music, find out you know, just more information about them in general, you can follow them on Twitter at U-W-R-A-N-G-L-E-R-S. That is U-Wranglers. Uh, You can find them on Facebook, just search for the Unicorn Wranglers, and also check out their website, unicornwranglers.com. So sit back and enjoy this wonderful conversation I had with Steve Wise. And welcome back to the Derek Diamond Experience with my very special guest this week. He is a writer, director, and producer of film, Mr. Steve Wise. Steve, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing pretty good, Derek. Good, good. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to come by here. You've, you've actually been someone I've wanted to have on the show for a pretty good while because we've had a few good conversations about film, so I was like, hey, we should have it on the podcast because... The film-related episodes seem to be the most popular, so figured, well, why not? Glad to be here. So. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you, um, where are you originally from? Uh, I am originally from Michigan. I was uh, born in Royal Oak, and uh, but I grew up in a little town north of Detroit called Milford. 
Oh, cool. Yeah, I actually have uh, one of my good friends lives in uh, East Lansing. Okay. He's lived there for, I think, two years now. So okay. he, he's, he says it's a really nice place, and he likes Michigan. Oh, so. Michigan's beautiful, yeah. Yeah, I've never been, but you know, hopefully get to make it there one day. Um, growing up, were you always a fan of film? Ever since I can remember, yeah. Um, I can still remember as a very little child <laughs> going to uh, uh, to see movies. In fact, the first one I remember was at a drive-in theater, and I was... I ended up falling asleep in the uh, back of the station wagon, and we we saw one of Kurt Russell's early Disney films. I believe it was Now You See Me, Now You Don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can remember falling asleep and then waking up during part of it, and I must have been like maybe four. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't think I've ever seen that one. I've heard the name, but I've never seen it. Um, what were some other films that you liked growing up? Well, um, I was always drawn to, you know, like science fiction, fantasy, adventure stories. Um, my favorite movie when I was a kid, and it still is my favorite movie, is Jaws. And I actually was too young to see it when it came out in the theaters, and my older friends all got to see it. And, of course, they told me all about it. And uh, <laughs> we had this, um, one of my friends' house, we had, they had a, a trailer, just like a one-axle trailer. And so that was the Orca and we would be on it, rocking it back and forth as the shark would be attacking the, yeah. <laughs> the boat. And uh, so it was actually after Jaws 2 came out, and I was like nine at the time, and um, I saw that first and, of course, loved it. And then they re-released the first movie right. for a week before they put it on TV. And I think I saw it six times in the theater that week. And, you know, our little local theater was just a, you know, one screener in a strip mall. So, so uh, um, but I pretty much lived in the theater that week watching Jaws over and over again. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but I, I do appreciate, you know, the role that it plays. Because a lot of people consider that to be the first real summer blockbuster mm-hmm. yeah. movie. And it's it's one of... You know, it's one of the best summer movies ever in my mind. And of course, Star Wars. I mean, uh, that, that well, yeah, changed yeah. my life. Uh, yeah. When when that finally came to Milford, we um, we had to stand in line for like an hour to be able to get in, get the tickets for it. And I think there were like seven of us that you know went to see it. And for that particular screening, uh, it, they had exactly seven seats left in the theater. Oh, wow. So they had an usher with a flashlight trying to find the the seats so we were scattered all through the, the the theater and we were late going in and when i walked in the first image i saw was when the droids are ejecting from uh you know from princess leia's ship mm-hmm. and that was the first image was the the little shuttle pod breaking free mm-hmm. and i can remember just freezing in my tracks and my breath just <laughs> leaving <laughs> and just like <laughs> and but it was like, oh, I got to go sit down. And I was just so uh, taken away by that movie. And I mean, it literally changed my life at that moment because it was like, this is this is what I want to do. Yeah, that's uh, I mean, I wasn't old enough to watch the original Star Wars. I wasn't born yet when it came out. But I remember when they were re-released in the 90s mm-hmm. and that being such a big deal because that the was... The special edition. Yeah. yeah, the special edition. But I watched the 
unaltered the original original trilogy uh, on VHS when I was a kid, and I just fell in love with it. I mean, I, I love all three of them. I mean, uh, Empire is my favorite. Yeah, but, of course. <laughs> but I, mean, I, I like all three of them. All three of them are just so good. Mm-hmm. But uh, what what are your thoughts on uh, the new one coming out, Episode 7? I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> I, am, I am too. Um, you know, of course, a lot has been made about the fact that it's going back to practical effects and they're actually building sets and building robots. That's what robots. you should do. It makes sense continuity-wise. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's like, okay, that's cool. Um, I'm very happy to hear that. I, I wonder how much of that is just they're doing it for marketing purposes since reaction, at least belated reaction to the prequels are so negative against the green screen and right. CGI. Um, of course, bear in mind, when that when the prequels first came out, when Phantom Menace first premiered, people were blown away by it. Yeah, It's just that with the um, predominance of CGI in summer blockbusters, people are tired of seeing that look. And so the idea of, oh, going retro is kind of exciting for people uh, to see what they can do with physical effects as opposed to, ah, CGI, we can do anything we want. And to some degree limitations cause better creativity. Yeah. And, you know, if you are existing in a world where money doesn't matter and you can do anything you want, um, it to some degree limits creativity and it becomes just kind of vanilla. Yeah, but I, if, I totally agree. But if your hands are tied and you have to think creatively and it's like, okay, how can we fix this problem? We have to have this happen in, it, in it makes you a better filmmaker mm-hmm. in my mind it does and uh what what are your thoughts on jj abrams directing it i i like jj abrams yeah films. i do too. I, I really i mean everything that he's done i've enjoyed mm-hmm. and uh you know i'm still a, a fan of his mission Impossible three i know that's mm-hmm. kind of um the least popular i think of of the four of them um and people tend to forget about that one but i i think that that's well, the fourth one was very good, too, which he produced. Um, but uh, I, I really like that film a lot. A lot of people, at least from what I've, who I talked to, uh, didn't like him being the choice because he did Star Trek. But I'm like, mm-hmm. he's, I thought, I wouldn't want anybody else to do it besides him. I think he's, he's a fan. Yeah. And he knows what fans are going to want. And I think he's going to give the fans what they well, want. Well, I liked what he did with the first his first Star Trek film. Yes. Um, I'm still on the fence about the second one. I need to watch it again because there's some issues with it that I don't know if it can overcome those story issues. Um, but I enjoyed it when I saw it in the theater. Um, but I'm I'm actually a fan of his lens flares too. I mean, and he gets a bad rap for that, but um, I've I've always been a lens flare person. I've put lens flares in my own films, so when I see him do it it's like okay you know it kind of validates what i do (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm uh i'm looking forward to episode seven because you know when that lightsaber ignites there's going to be a link it's going to be fantastic but i i'm really i'm really looking forward to it i I think that when the first trailer comes out people are going to go ballistic oh yeah because i remember being in a theater when the first teaser for Revenge of the Sith came out and it used footage from the original films Mm -hmm. and it had Alec Guinness's voice over and everything. It's still to this day, the only trailer I've seen that got a standing ovation. 
Well, you know, when Phantom Menace came out, um, or prior to that, the two-minute trailer was attached, I think, initially to Meet Joe Black with Brad Pitt, Mm -hmm. which nobody really had any interest in seeing, except for the Star Wars trailer. And they played it once before the movie, and then once after the movie. Oh, wow. And so people knew that, so they stayed for the entire credits for this three-hour movie, to see the trailer for the second time. And they hadn't released it on, on the internet at that point. And, I mean, people showed up in that film in droves just to see the trailer. And to some degree, the trailer was better than the movie. <laughs> I never saw the movie, so I, I can't comment on you it. You haven't seen can... Phantom Menace? No, uh, Meet Joe Black. Oh, okay. No, no, I was talking about the, the trailer for Phantom Menace was better than the yeah, actual yeah. Yeah, feature. Yeah. But uh, in some respects. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, I remember that being a huge deal too, because I remember that movie made so much money, and the yeah. marketing was just crazy. Like yeah. every fast food place you went, there were some kind of Star Wars mm-hmm. toys or memorabilia. It was just insane, and I can only imagine how it's going to be for Episode Seven. It just you know sitting in the theater, and now here's the one problem I'm going to have with the new movie because when. For me, sitting in that theater and having that 20th Century Fox logo come on and that fanfare followed by Lucasfilm LTD and then a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there is not a feeling quite like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it's it's magical. And just in, and to see the word Star Wars appear on the film with that John Williams score, um, it's Episode seven is being released by Disney, and I don't know how that's gonna really have. I, I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna be okay. Yeah. I, I really do. But like you said, when the word Star Wars pop mm-hmm. up and that John Williams score starts, people are gonna go crazy, and I, I'm gonna be one of them. I'm gonna be screaming with everybody else. It's gonna be great. I, I'm really looking forward to it. But uh, growing up, uh, did you have any other interests besides film? Um, well, I've always been a writer, and um, ever since I can remember, I, I've been writing stories and screenplays and whatnot. Um, I taught myself how to type. We had an old, I don't remember what the brand is, but just one of those little clanky typewriters. Mm-hmm. And um, I pretty much taught myself, I think my mom probably showed me where finger positions were, but I was 10 keying at like age 10. Um, and I can remember my older sister had a an electric typewriter that I pretty much just kind of, took from her and made that my own. And growing up, we just kind of moved to like an IBM Selectric. And then finally, you know, when word processors came out, I was able to, you know, segue over into that and into computers. Um, so other than a printing press, I pretty much used every form of uh, typesetting <laughs> at one point or another in my life. Um, but writing and storytelling is a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, film is a way to express that. And, you know, I've I've always been enamored by film, whether it's, you know, Jaws or Star Wars or Planet of the Apes or uh, the, the early disaster films from the 70s. I love those. Um, you know, any, the Poseidon Adventure was mm-hmm. one of my favorite films. Um, those types of movies really, um, I don't know, it hit home with me for some some reason. Mm-hmm. And so those were the type of stories that I wanted to to tell. And so anything with creativity, imagination, 
and you know so so writing and filmmaking was you know always what I wanted to do yeah to me that's the greatest thing about film is just telling stories Mm -hmm. because you can have great effects even good acting but to me the number one thing I look for is the good story Mm -hmm. because to me film is a great way to just go to a theater or whether you watch it you know at your house or a friend's house or whatever to just put a movie on and you can just escape into it for a couple of hours and it's to me through the story that I think is is how you do that Mm -hmm. so I think you know that I totally agree with that aspect about storytelling but um what was it Star Wars that made you ultimately decide this is what I'm going to do. You knew all the way back then that that was what you wanted to do. <laughs> well, you know, what's funny is actually um, I've been making movies since I was eight years old. And, and that was that actually predated Star Wars coming out because I think I was nine when, uh, when Star Wars hit the theaters. Um, a friend of mine, uh, he was a couple years older than me, um, but he was my best friend. His older brother, who was a teenager at the time, um, was doing a film on Super 8. And so my friend John called me up and said, hey, do you want to make a movie? I'm like, well, how do you do that? <laughs> and so he said, no, you know, we have a, a Super 8 camera, and you know, it was no sound to it, just you know, the, the little cartridges were like three and a half minutes long at the time. And so we did a Western in the their basement their father had installed a bar and it was still under construction so it kind of had this rustic look to it mm-hmm. and so we had a bar scene in a, a old west saloon type of thing and i think um the miniseries how the west was won had just come out so of course the name of this was how the west was lost and um you know, I didn't really participate in the making of it. I was just more, you know, just appearing in it. Mm-hmm. But it was so fun. And, of course, my love of movies was just like, yeah, you know, we need to do this more often. And so my friends and I were, every year, every summer, we would do two or three of these little short films. Um, we actually did a film after Star Wars came out with the original title of Galactic Wars. And once again, his John's older brother uh, was the director on it. And there was a, a movie magazine that had just come out at the time. And I want to say it was Cinefest, if I'm not mistaken. And they um, were running a short film contest. And so we entered and ended up getting um, an honorable mention, basically like a runner-up position after the top three. And so if you go back to... Um, I want to say it was 1978, 79 issue. You can find that the name of Galactic Wars Mm -hmm. with uh, the director's name listed in it. So it was just kind of cool. (laughs) So, and just growing up, I've been, you know, I've been doing little short Super 8 films until, uh, until the advent of video. Did you go to film school? I did go to film school. Um, We we moved around a lot when, when I was a kid. And, you know, I lived in several different states. And so um, I actually got an associate's degree in, in Oklahoma. And we were living in Oklahoma City at the time. And um, they didn't have really a film program there, but they had broadcasting. So it was mm-hmm. radio, television. And so I got my associate's degree in broadcasting. And I discovered very quickly that TV was not for me. Mm-hmm. And it just even though it was still 
production, it, it wasn't really it's the It's not area. the same. It's not the same, no. And I know that it's kind of the two mediums are kind of nowadays crossing over a little bit more. But still, when you're dealing with like news gathering or, um, you know, live broadcast yeah. or, or studio situation. Um, I absolutely hate directing in a studio um, that it's not, you know, it's, it's more by the numbers and you have to really have, have a different skill set than, than yeah. what I have. And so it wasn't fun for me. Um, the university of Oklahoma had film, but they had it scattered between the English department, the journalism department and the art department. And because I had a broadcasting degree, uh, they put me into journalism, which of course was not what I wanted to do. Yeah. <laughs> if I had switched over to English or art, I would have had to have then taken all these other classes for that because basically I would have gotten a you know an art degree or an English degree. Right. And I attended school there for one semester. The uh, <laughs> one film class I took, we were shooting on Super Eight, and uh, I did this little black and white film. And most of the students in that class had absolutely no idea what they were doing. They, they, the teacher was right out of school himself, so he really didn't have any idea what he was doing. And most of the students were in it just for fun. So <laughs> when the end of the year came and we were showing our, our final projects, when my film came up, everybody else kind of looked at me and said, that looks like a real movie. Yeah, that's kind of the point. That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so uh, you know, that kind of told me right there that, uh, okay, there's there's a problem here. Um, fortunately, my family had moved to Orlando at that time. And um, I went to visit during Easter break. And they told me that the University of Central Florida was starting a film program that was during the era when Disney was building their studios theme park. Universal right. was being built, and it just seemed like that was the place to be. And so I moved, transferred to UCF, had to wait for like a year and a half before they actually started the film program. And uh, so I was just taking classes for the time being just to keep my enrollment and waiting very impatiently. <laughs> Then I found out, oh, okay, they're accepting applications now. And I thought it was just a matter of switching my major. And the the deadline was like on a Monday, in, I want to say on February. And I went down there on um, Thursday to, trans to just switch my, uh, my major. And they handed me a packet that was the application process. A packet? A packet. Oh, geez. <laughs> And I was required to write an essay on why I wanted to get in. Um, I needed to turn in a portfolio. I needed to do all these other things that um, within like three days. And I was like, okay, uh, well, I need to get to work now. Um, I had my, my student film that I made in, in Oklahoma, but they didn't accept Super 8. They only accepted VHS. So I had to find a place that would do a transfer very quickly and um, I found it in Lakeland so over the weekend I had to drive drive to Lakeland get my film transferred I was printing out these screenplays I wrote um, and of course at that time it was dot matrix <laughs> so I spent hours upon hours printing out 
tearing off the little uh, paper uh, holey things on the yeah, sides, the sides with the holes and uh, making sure I didn't rip the paper. When, and of course, it was you know the printing was terrible at the time, and so. Um, <laughs> so I put together this portfolio, wrote my essay, and I was still I was working also, not to mention going to school, so my time was very limited. And the deadline was Monday, five o'clock. I got there like at ten to five. And it was in the communications office on the fifth floor of a building where the elevator did not work very well. So I basically had to carry this box load of stuff up five stories and deliver it and the secretary is thumbing through it and she said oh um you're missing your transcripts it's like oh i'm going to the school my transcripts are here at the school and she said well our computers don't talk to the computers at registration at the um whatever you call it admin so i had to basically run down five flights of stairs run across campus go to the admin building have them print out my transcripts, run back across campus, up five flights of stairs, turn in my transcripts. And of course, usually it takes like three days for them to, you know, after you submit a request for transcripts, but they took pity on me. And I got it in right under the wire. And remember, they had a couch there in the office. And I just collapsed on it. And the door opened. Some guy came in and said, is this where you apply for film school? <laughs> Uh, so I didn't hear for like a month whether I got in mm-hmm. and oh, and then to top it off, I found out they were only accepting 30 students. Oh, geez. <laughs> and they had about 500 applicants from all over the world. So I just assumed there's no way I'm going to get in. And I remember getting the letter. And I was standing outside my apartment, and I had just this letter from the, the communications department. And I thought, well, I better get it over with. So I walked inside my apartment, ripped open the letter, and the first thing I saw was, we are pleased. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I was jumping up and down and screaming. Ah! I mean, that was one of the happiest days of my life. And that started two, actually two and a half years of um, intense film school. We were the guinea pigs. We were the very first year we were using equipment that was largely donated to us. We were shooting on 16 millimeter and super VHS for our documentaries and some other stuff. Um, and they had flatbed editors. Uh, remember, we had a computer that had the very first digital editing program that nobody knew how to use, not even the, the faculty. They installed it, and they're like, well, if you want to figure it out, go for it. But, of course, how do you get your film into a digital format to edit? You know, that was the big question. Nobody knew anything at that time as far as how to, how to go digital. And... Um, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty cool, you know. Trying to go to school full time, work full time, and do films full time. Uh, that's that's pretty awesome. Though, yeah, <laughs> you were able to get all that stuff in like in the eleventh hour, and then you still got it. But that guy that walked in and said, "Is this where you apply to film school?" If I were you, I would have had some very unkind words. I, I think I started laughing. I just uh, I, I guess at that point you kind of have to. <laughs> 
but yeah, I went to I went to school with um, some guys that went uh, who became successful. Um, Ed Sanchez, Dan Myrick, uh, Mike Manello. Um, they were um, in my class, and they ended up uh, directing, producing the Blair Witch Project. Um, a couple guys that came a year later, Robin Coey and Craig Hale. They they were, were partners in, in that group also, and uh, that's um, awesome. Yeah, so I still keep in touch with all those guys. And uh, um, Ed almost was a guest last year at Pensacon, which I'm staff on. But uh, he had to, he got a job. (laughs) Ended up shooting a show called The Intruders. did the pilot the first four episodes i think it was and uh, so yeah he had to he had to go bail on us because of you know filming a tv show <laughs> how dare he <laughs> but that, that's cool because I, I remember that movie being the marketing behind that was really cool too just mm-hmm. from, i remember seeing the first trailers for it and you're just thinking what in the world is this you know i've got to see it well what's funny is you know when it's your friends yeah, and I, I worked with Dan for three years at Lockheed Martin doing video production, and we shared an office actually at Universal Studios. Um, there was a group of us that took out this office that was oh, about the size of a normal closet, and uh, <laughs> which you know we were paying monthly rent on, and, and that actually came in very handy uh, later on when we started pitching scripts to studios and whatnot because we could say yeah you know steve wise uh, from interson productions at universal studios florida uh we have a you know script that we want to want to pitch to you oh really well yeah sure we'll set up a time but uh so dan and i and several other people uh call ourselves the filmmakers alliance which i guess is that name is being used for some other things now but uh so we spent several years together working and in, in um you know, after hours also, but he was doing his own projects. I was doing mine and he ended up kind of moving on and doing things. And so a couple of years later, I heard about the Blair Witch Project. And of course the natural reaction is, oh, what are they doing? <laughs> like, yeah, sure. You know, and someone's you know, a little feature film that they're, you know, because uh, Dan, uh, Ed had actually done a feature film while we were in, in film school and he went up to Maryland where he, where his family lived and, and filmed it. And it was rough, you know, just your first project like that is, you know, not necessarily going to come together as well as you mm-hmm. anticipated. And so, you know, I kind of kept, tabs on on Blair Witch and saw, oh, yeah, they're going to premiere it at the Enzian Theater in Maitland, which was the local art house theater, and they host the Florida Film Festival. Mm-hmm. So it, it got into there and did really well. I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. And then we heard, oh, it's going to be at Sundance. And it's like, really? <laughs> okay, I guess this is a little more serious than I thought. <laughs> and then word came down that at Sundance, it was purchased for, I think, a million dollars. And they had spent like 300000 on it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, someone just wrote you a check for a million dollars. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I called the guys and congratulated them. And uh, then from there, it hit the theaters and it came out the same year Phantom Menace did. Mm-hmm. And, um, I believe it was the number two movie of the year. Yep. I remember it being just hugely popular. Cool. Have you done any like local, uh, you mentioned you did some acting with the, mm-hmm. uh, was it the dream players theater? Yeah. Um, they, yeah, it was kind of funny. Um, I, I start basically two different things going on at the same time, but dream players, uh, I was living, I live in Milton and they were holding auditions and, uh, someone 
a friend of mine contacted me and said, hey, you should go audition for them. And I had been wanting to do some acting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all through high school, I was involved with the drama club. So I, I did a lot of acting and, and behind the uh, scenes type of stuff, uh, stagehand work. And um, in film school, I acted in some uh, other student films. But as a director, uh, it's always good to know what the craft is because you know, basically you have two different two different kinds of directors. One that is visual, and then the other kind that works with actors. You know, so you have people like George Lucas or um, Tim Burton who are visual mm-hmm. storytellers. Then you have people like Woody Allen or Rob Reiner who are actors, directors, and you watch their visuals and eh, they might be good. They might be just basic shots, but you're engrossed in the story because of the acting. Yeah. So, you know, and it, I tend to, or at least I bl- want to believe I'm, I'm kind of, kind of in the Spielbergian camp of storytelling and I try to be creative with my visuals, but without and one one thing that Spielberg is good at is both visuals and understanding actors. Yes. And I remember reading about Francois Truffaut wanting to act in close encounters. And so when Spielberg offered him, he's like, yes, because he was writing a book on acting. Mm-hmm. And he had acted in a lot of his own films. But um the problem is that he had never acted for another director. So how does it feel to actually take direction? And so I've been really wanting to, and of course, you know, after moving up here, I wasn't really very active in the community for, for a while. And when I heard about this, this auditions, I figured, well, let me stop in and see what they're all about. And in dream players is a murder mystery dinner theater show. And they put on different shows in restaurants and different venues, and the public comes in, eats. They have different uh, courses that they eat, and then the actors come out and perform right there at the tables. So it's a different kind of acting than up on stage or in front of a camera. And so I I went in an audition for them and really didn't know what to expect, and I was offered a role with them. So I I did three shows with them total. This past year, I've been really busy and haven't been able to do anything with them. Um, but uh, it was really a, a kind of a cool thing. But what, what I discovered, though, is not having really truly acted for <laughs> someone since high school, um, you're in a very vulnerable place. Yeah. And it's sometimes very stressful, even if, if you're putting the stress on yourself. Um, you have to learn lines you have to learn the blocking you have to do everything in a very quick amount of time and still put on a character and be believable as that character now here again the murder mystery dinner theater show it's it's a little over the top it's more cartoonish type of characters than real life um so you know you're not doing shakespeare you're not doing tennessee williams but it is still something that you have to be on your game because you're two feet away from your audience. Yeah. They're right there in your face. And sometimes you're interacting with the audience. And if you're not in character and really are committing to that character, you're, you're losing your audience. Yeah. And, and so that's the big challenge. And it's, um, 
So that that was something that was a little different different exercise for me, which I thought was was really good. But coming from a director's perspective, it helps me understand a little bit more. I, I feel, and I might be wrong about this, but I, I feel like I'm pretty good with, with working with actors. Um, but I think now I have a, a better understanding of what they are going through and their vulnerabilities. So um, when I work with actors again, I'll be able to bring that perspective. That's cool. That actually sounds like it'd be fun to do just because it's so different. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you get involved with uh, with kinematic? Well, kind of a roundabout way. I think it was the the same week that I was applying or I was auditioning for Dream Players. I got a, an email out of out of the blue, and I'd recently um, signed up with the Emmercoast Film Group on Facebook, mm-hmm. and I had a uh, I still do I have <laughs> have a blog uh, through WordPress that I decided, well, let me upload some of the short films that I've made. Um, let me upload some of the short stories I've written and just have it as kind of a, um, a living resume type of thing where people can go and see my work. And so I introduced myself on the Emerald Coast Film Group and I mentioned a Batman screenplay that I co-wrote. And Will Phillips, who I now work with mm-hmm. at Cinematic, emailed me and he was um, at the time had uh, just finished up uh, basically producing a feature film of his own um, entity. Mm-hmm. And they were wanting to get started on another project. And so he contacted me and said, hey, you know, I read about you on Emma Film Group. And he tracked me down through my blog, actually. So I met with him and Courtney Hagens, who mm-hmm. I work with also. And they were wanting to um, start a new script and was asking if I would be interested in co-writing it. And so we brainstormed some ideas and Courtney and I then have spent the last year and a half, I think, um, working on it. Uh, It's a script called Meta and I can't really talk much about it, but it's a unique take on the superhero genre. And... uh, um, it's a gritty reboot. <laughs> um, default words, gritty yeah. reboot. So, so basically, they both ended up getting hired in through Kinematic, and um, at the at that time that I was that they were um, doing that when I was working with Courtney, they were gearing Kinematic was gearing up to do a short film called Girl from Iceland, mm-hmm. and so Will put me in contact with Ben Galecki, the owner of Kinematic. And I sat down, talked with them, and Ben hired me to produce Girl from Iceland. Uh, from that point on, we did The Summoning, which uh, Courtney wrote and Will directed, and then Shackled, which um, the two of them, uh, Courtney and Max Nadsity, uh, wrote, and then um, Courtney and Will directed. So, and so I produced those three. We've uh, done several commercials now. Um, I, Will and I directed a, a two commercials for Pensacon last year, and uh, one of them was up for an Addy Award, and actually won a Silver Addy. So, which one was it? That was the um, Visit Pensacon commercial. Oh yeah, yeah I remember seeing that. <laughs> which was a, a shot-for-shot remake of the Visit Pensacola commercial that um, was quite controversial last year. Yeah, I was. You don't even want to get me started on that commercial. But <laughs> um, what? 
who had the original idea for Pensacon? Like, how did that whole idea blossom into what it became? My understanding is that Mike Ensley, who's the chairman of Pensacon, um, had uh, this was kind of a, a dream of his for a very long time to to do a convention that would bring the community together, and you know there, there's been a few small conventions here in town, and um, he, initially he was wanting to do another small one and figured well you know we can bring one or two guests some celebrities but you know kind of focus on. The comic book world. Um, we don't really have a true comic book convention here. And so um, he has some contacts through um, to, to the comic book world. And so he figured, well, we can get some comic book guests and get, you know, maybe one or two celebrity guests. And he was put in touch with Ben. And the decision then was made, well, let's um, do it right. And let's spend a little money and bring in some major guests and let's make it make it big and it it ended up i don't think it was a snap decision like that but it kind of evolved and grew and by the time that we actually did it this past february it was at the pensacola bay center and the crown plaza hotel right next door and we had events and parties going on in various places downtown Mm -hmm. and it had spread basically to the whole downtown area and so Mike's dream of having a large community event where everybody comes together um, kind of came true. Yeah, and it did. I don't. Did you guys expect it to be as big as it was? <laughs> I don't think any of us knew what to expect. Um, we were hoping that we would have five thousand attendees. Mm-hmm. Um, I think over the course of the weekend, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of 15. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know on Saturday alone, we had close to 11,000 people. Yeah, Saturday was was pretty crazy because I I was on the the film crew and I just Mm -hmm. remember walking around the the vendor floor and it was next to impossible to move because I'm carrying this camera and a tripod I'm having to hold it like this as I walk through the crowd because there's just so many people there. Yeah. And demonstrate to your audience again how you're carrying it. Well, they won't be able to see <laughs> I talk with my hands. So. <laughs> you're the first person to ever call me out on that. <laughs> I'm like Robin Williams when I do voice work. I just project myself like this. Oh, oh trust me. I, I, I talk with my hands too and people make <laughs> have made fun of me my entire <laughs> life for it. Uh, they, my, my dad has been known to grab my hands and hold them when I try to talk to see if I can actually speak without using my hands. <laughs> and it's very, very difficult. Yeah, my dad says, I'd like to tie your hands to a table to see if you can actually speak. <laughs> but um, what, what were your overall thoughts? Like, What were some of your personal highlights from Pensacon? Things that like, you personally enjoyed? <laughs> well, it was all a blur. <laughs> I, I this 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 past year, um, my main responsibility was transportation. Right. So I was responsible for getting all of our celebrity guests from the airport to the hotel, and then back to the airport again when all was said and done. And then during the event to make sure that we had because. <laughs> Our convention is a little bit strange in the fact that the hotel is right next door to our primary uh, venue, but it also, some of it takes place at the hotel. 
And of course, all of our celebs were staying at that hotel, but they needed to be transported to the Bay Center. Mm-hmm. And the way that the roads are designed, there's not an easy way no, to do that. There's really not. And so, yeah, uh, it was it was kind of a logistics nightmare just to try to figure out how to get it ne- get to these people next door. We didn't want them to walk, you know. We wanted them to to actually you know be driven, mm-hmm. and but you have to like drive all the way around the block and come in behind the base. Uh, it was just it was challenging um so we had a couple wonderful people uh, maria landy and walt matthews was overseeing that aspect of things for me so i was able to kind of check in with them periodically and see how things were going we had a crew of great drivers who were responsible for getting them back and forth because in the morning they would have to be shuttled over to the bay center then at some point during the weekend they would have to be brought back because that was the large panel room was at the crown plaza so they'd have to do their panel and then be shuttled back again and then at the end of the day brought back you know so it's a constant back and forth all day long and so we had some big rental suvs that were you know there to to that were driving all day long um and then we had parking and that was a challenge in itself (laughs) but the biggest uh thing was most of our guests were arriving on Thursday before the event. Well, a lot of them were flying in through Houston, which had severe thunderstorms. So virtually every flight coming through Houston was either delayed or canceled. So we were constantly getting updates. Oh, this group of people aren't arriving when they're supposed to be because of delays. Um, Mike Ensley texted me at one point and said, um, call Parker Stevenson at this number and find out what's going on. Of course, I grew up watching the Hardy Boys and like, call Parker Stevenson. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I got on the phone, called, and and hear this voice, you know, hello. I said, is this Parker Stevenson? Yeah, so I explained who I was, and he said, yeah, I'm sitting in the airplane on the tarmac in Los Angeles where we haven't moved for three hours. Wow. There's a problem with the wing, and there were a couple other celebs that were on the flight with him, and like, oh, great. Total four planes had mechanical problems. Jeez. Then, to top it off, Five o'clock rolls around, and we have still flights coming in all the way to like ten thirty that night. I, I'm I go up. I'd just been outside talking with our taxi drivers, and I go up to the second floor where um, arrivals are and talk to one of the employees, and they said, "Oh well, we've got delays." I'm like, why? Look out the window. I looked out the window, and it was a sheet of fog. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I said, "I was just outside. Where did this fog come from?" There was no fog five minutes ago. It just dropped and it shut down the airport for hours. So we had planes coming in for a landing and taking off again because they could not land. And so we had planes. It was like Die Hard 2. Planes were just circling overhead, just circling and circling until they were running out of gas. And then they were being diverted to Mobile and 
New Orleans and Fort Walden Beach and Atlanta. And we had people like Priscilla Barnes who disappeared. We had no idea where she was. We found out she was in Dallas. Wow. And, I mean, you talk about a nightmare. <laughs> Here, we had everything all organized. All these people coming in at this time. We had it just working like clockwork. And then just boop, throw it out the window thanks to mechanical problems and weather. So, Friday of the event, I was back down at the airport again all day long, greeting people as they were arriving. Uh, Christian Nairn, poor guy. And this guy is like almost seven feet tall, Mm -hmm. big guy. Uh, He was in Atlanta, and they told him not to get a hotel room. Even though his plane was scheduled to leave first thing in the morning, they said, oh, don't get a hotel room because we might call you earlier for a flight. If you miss that flight, then like, what's going to be earlier than six in the morning? Yeah, you know, flights don't leave that early. And uh, Nicholas Brendan and his agent, they were on the same flight. They wouldn't got a hotel room. <laughs> but poor Christian slept in the airport. Oh wow! And so he know. arrived first thing in the morning, and and, and Nikki was like, "Oh yeah, he was fresh, you know, <laughs> he'd get a shower and everything." And Christian was like, "Oh," <laughs> walking, lumbering in, like. Oh, I, I just—I didn't sleep at all because I was trying to. He's got mm-hmm. this thick accent, and yeah. uh, uh, I, I felt so bad for him. So, my experience—what I remember most was sitting at the airport. <laughs> I mean, he—he he seemed to be a trooper though, because I, I got to talk to him for a couple of minutes, and he was a super nice guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he just a very nice guy. Yeah. Uh, just really, really, truly uh, just generous we, person. Because we, we got to do a couple of interviews with uh, a few of the guests for the Nerd Cave, the other podcast I do. Mm-hmm. And everyone we talked to was super friendly and everything. So I, I, th- I thought it was great. But um, what uh, what are some events that are coming up, uh, like leading up? We've got Pensacon 2015 in mm-hmm. late February. But you've also got the uh, the Expo. And you've got the Zombie Run, right? Um, yes. And uh, we have the Zombie Run 5K, which um, is going to be November 1st. Yes, the day after Halloween. Yes, Halloween is on a Friday. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to have a bunch of hungover runners, I think. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really exciting event. We're expecting somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 people. To, to be running. That's awesome. And so we have, how it works is we have some people who are signing up to be zombies and they're going to be at various um, zombie horde zones throughout the, the run. And the whole course takes place throughout the downtown Pensacola area. And um, so we have various places where zombies are going to be hidden, <laughs> sometimes not so hidden. Um, and the runners are survivors of the zombie plague. And so when they start off, they're gonna have a, um, a flag, like flag football, um, that they're gonna be wearing. And as they run through the course, they have to run through these zombie hordes. And if one of the zombies takes their flag, they are now infected. And so they are gonna be given a green flag or this piece of ribbon that they have to tie to their foreheads and that indicates that they are now infected. And so they still can finish the course, but the, um, the people who finish that 
our survivors will be, you know, given some special accommodation or something, you know, some uh, accolades. Uh, <laughs> so, but that's the, that's the goal, you know, to have fun yeah. with it and try to not get infected and, and finish. So last year we, we did this right before Pensacon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we had one survivor. Just one? Just one. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, this one is a much bigger event. Um, we only had a very short amount of time last year to pull it, pull it together. Um, we basically inherited the event with it from another another group. and uh, But this year we've been putting a lot of really cool planning into it. And we're teamed with Running Wild. And, oh, good. And they've, that's, that's great. They've done a lot of... Um, yeah, they do a really good job with that kind oh, of yeah, stuff. Oh, yeah, they do, they're great. So they've got the course laid out and everything. And, um, you know, once again, Will Phillips has been uh, the one kind of spearheading this. And um, this, just, this is going to be a really cool event. Yeah, I remember last year thinking this is such a genius concept mm-hmm. for a run. Like if, if I wasn't working it with you guys, I would, I would be running it because it, it, it just seems like so much fun to do. It just seems great. But what about the uh, the expo? Well, the Pop Expo. <laughs> this this is going to be two weeks later. Uh, not that we don't want to take on you know too many things all at one time, but uh, um, it's the Pensacola Pop Expo, and it's going to be part of the Fufu Festival. Uh, that uh, the and I'm going to mess up the name. The Arts Cultural Entertainment organization ACE um, they are, are putting this on and they, they offer different uh, grants for people to um, different nonprofit organizations we've we've teamed up with with a couple of nonprofits including mana so um, this is really big if you're gonna come out for either the zombie run or the um, pop Expo bring cans to donate to mana um, the flood that we had earlier that this last year uh, or the, this year I should say the summer um, completely destroyed their entire stock of food and so we hosted a, a fundraiser um a few months ago uh that we were auctioning off different pieces of artwork and to try to raise money and to try to bring in canned goods for mana that was a big success but they really need food because there's a lot of families in our area that uh, they need they they, they depend on mana for yeah for their food so um so come on out and take part in the fun and donate to Mana. So, anyways, um, we uh, we're going to be pairing up with with the Fufu Festival. Ours is actually our event is um, the the last hurrah, mm-hmm. and we're going to have Ernie Hudson there, and who you know one of the stars of Ghostbusters. Uh, this is the thirtieth thirtieth anniversary yeah. of Ghostbusters. So we're going to have a free outdoor screening of the movie, and this takes place over at Seville Quarter. And um, so Ernie's going to be there all day signing autographs. Uh, I think he might be at one or two different uh, locations throughout the day, and then um, he's going to do a Q and A session before the movie. We're going to have some entertainment prior to that, and uh, and then show the movie. But during the daytime, we're going to have somewhere in the neighborhood of like 75 different um, artist booths open. Oh, and, good. And different community um, people are going to be uh, taking part in it also. And um, we're going to have um, comic book artists coming in, um, local artists. We ha- One thing that I'm really impressed with with Pensacola is the amount of artistic talent we have in this town. Uh, I mean, it just really astounds me how many people I've met who are amazing artists. 
And the whole purpose for the Pop Expo is it's pop art. So it's connected to comic books or, um, you know, I, I know a, f- a couple of friends of mine that paint um, paintings of like, you know, Walter White from Breaking Bad and, and or the Joker or Batman, mm-hmm. you know. So they do different paintings of popular characters. And so that that's a type of thing that you're going to be seeing at the Pop Expo. Um, it's a free event. You come down and we're just asking, you know, to, to donate to MANA. And, um, you know, hopefully people can buy some of the artwork and meet some celebrities. Um, we're also going to have um, a wrestler from... WWE, uh, the Honky Tonk Man. He was. Oh, nice. He was. Yep. He was at. Uh, he was a guest at Pensacon this last year too. So he's going to be there, interacting with people, signing autographs, whatnot. So if you're a wrestling fan, you can come out for that. If you're a Ghostbusters fan, you can come out and meet Ernie. Ernie is an extremely nice guy. He just. He's a great guy, and uh, he, he's good to good to his audience. Yeah, I didn't get to meet him at Pensacon, but I actually met him at Dragon Con. The oh, did you? Year. Yeah, he had the full Ghostbusters mm-hmm. get up and everything, mm-hmm. and he, he was great. Yeah, he, he wore that great. at Pensacon. I imagine he'll yeah. probably be wearing it at this, this event as well. But yeah, it's, to me, it's great to see celebrities do stuff like that, mm-hmm. just to really get into it and be good to the fans. And mm-hmm. I think that's great. Um, is there anything that you can discuss about the upcoming Pensacon? Because there have been some pretty big guests announced, like... Uh, uh, what's her name? She played Uhura in the original. Nichelle Nichols. Yeah, Nichelle Nichols. Yeah. Nichelle was she was one of our first guests that we announced. Um, we are we would like <laughs> to be a little bit heavier on Star Trek um, guests this year um, because last year we had Walter Koenig who played Chekhov. Uh, this year we have Uhura. Um, we also have uh, Marina Sirtis, who is uh, Counselor, Counselor Troy. Troy and Next Generation. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, and then we have a couple other people who have made different guest appearances. So, um, and we, you know, we might be making some other guest announcements at some point, too. Um, and we still have several months to go before. We do, yes. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the big... Uh, another huge guess is Michael Bean, who uh, played... Original Terminator. Played in the original Terminator as Kyle Reese, and he was in Aliens as uh, Corporal Hicks, mm-hmm. and he was in uh, The Abyss, and actually playing the villain this time. Uh, and he's done a lot of other movies, and I'm, I'm myself, I'm looking forward to him, because yeah. <laughs> uh, he's starred in some of my, my favorite films. Um, we've got one of the original Doctor Who's, the fifth Doctor, Peter Davison. Mm-hmm. So for all you Whovians out there, uh, that's kind of exciting news. Um, we have two of our guests from last year who were original Power Rangers, Walter Jones and David Yost. They are returning, and we've got several other of the original cast members. So we're going to be doing a um, special panel with them. That's one of the largest reunions in the entire country. Of Power yeah. Rangers. As a fan, I'm so excited because <laughs> I loved that show growing up, and I mean, it was it was cool to meet uh, David Yost because the Blue Ranger was always my favorite mm-hmm. growing up. So meeting him was was really fun, and uh, also uh, people may not realize this. We mentioned that it was the 30 year anniversary of Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. but it's also the 30 year anniversary of the Terminator. Yeah, because it came out in '84, and the uh, the Ninja Turtles, the comic book came out in '84. Right, so a lot of a lot of 30-year anniversaries <laughs> that are happening this year. 
All right, the last couple of things I wanted to ask you. You got to be an extra in Jurassic World yes. and the new Fantastic Four yes. that's coming up. Well, that's, that's, uh, I, let me let me correct something. Okay. I was a background performer. Background performer. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. They, they made it very clear on, on Jurassic World that, you know, the 800 of us that were there were not extras. We were background, background performers. performers. And let me tell you, I spent uh, a total of seven days on Jurassic World. It was intense and very fun, and this movie is going to be awesome. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of the original. Um, oh, absolutely. And I'm one of the mi- minority who actually really enjoys The Lost World. I like that movie a, a lot. Not that it doesn't have problems, but I really like that movie. Jurassic Park 3, on the other hand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, we could we could go on for a couple hours talking about what was wrong with that movie, and <laughs> <laughs> not that it didn't have good moments, but yeah. it just it it failed in many ways with the story. Um, I'm not really quite sure why they approved that screenplay, but um, with this film, uh, Colin Trevorrow is the director. He's done one movie prior to this, which was Safety Not Guaranteed, a little low budget. Mm-hmm. science fiction-ish type of film. Um, it was kind of blew my mind that they hired him to direct a big-budget special effects film. But um, when I was watching him on the set, um, I really have a lot of confidence in what he's going to be able to pull off. Um, I can't talk really about the scenes I was in, <laughs> but uh, let's just say I was in the makeup chair for a little while <laughs> and uh, um, had some fun with blood. <laughs> so, But yeah, Jurassic Park is just one of those fun summer movies and it's been so long since there's been one. We need another fun Jurassic Park. Movie. We do. And I, I'm, I'm stoked about it because I, I love the original. It's one of those movies that even though it was made in the 90s, the effects still hold up to this day. Same thing with uh, the second Terminator with the T-1000 mm-hmm. effects. Those still hold up to this day. Well, you know, last year they re-released Jurassic Park in 3D. Mm-hmm. And, it, of course, it was a conversion. And I'm not really sold on 3D conversions, but they did it right. And I saw it in the theater, and it was like watching a brand-new movie. And I was, other than one shot where a character looked like he was a paper cutout, uh, <laughs> The 3D effects were phenomenal, and uh, but but yeah, the, the special effects hold up so mm-hmm. well. And you know when people talk bad about CGI, it's usually and of course this movie had actually very little CGI in comparison to practical effects. But um, the reason they talk bad about it is because they saw what Jurassic Park could do, they saw what T2 could do, and they saw saw what Phantom Menace could do, and then that became their default setting. And so it doesn't matter how much money they spend or what the quality of the effects. Well, we'll just do it in CGI and throw something crappy together. Or conversely, like Man of Steel, go completely over the top where you're watching an entire city be destroyed and you, or you know, the Transformers syndrome where it's just noise and sound and explosions yeah. and you're so distanced from it that you can't feel anything for it. Yeah. It, it's so hyper real that it loses its reality. So. 
And what about uh, Fantastic Four? Well, um, that should be interesting. <laughs> uh, I'm excited about seeing that. Uh, they uh, there was a whole group of us from kinematic and in the films that we've done that were able to go out there in fact um, several of those guys because they had beards um were called back to be chechenian terrorists (laughs) so they got a couple couple different roles in the film um i spent one day on the on the film they were shooting in baton rouge louisiana in august and which is rather warm and the setting was new york city in the winter Oh, man. So they had an intersection and a block in each direction um, looking exactly like a an intersection in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually did a, a Google Earth um, search for it and came up with a picture, and it looks identical. They even repaved the roads to wow. match the pavement. In New York, they had all the cars had New York license plates on them. I mean, the 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 attention to detail was phenomenal. That's pretty intense. I mean, they, you know, I mean, the Jurassic World set. It took them like six months to build that, and that was kind of interesting because it was a theme park in the parking lot of Six Flags, which was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. So you you have this brand new Jurassic World theme park right next to a dilapidated. Theme park, which yeah. <laughs> is very surreal. With with Fantastic Four, you're in Baton Rouge in New York. So, and, and of course, being wintertime, they had us wearing winter clothing. It was over 100 degrees, and we were wearing heavy coats. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, when they, when they would say picture up, then we'd put the coats on. As soon as they yelled cut, they say take the coats off, and and they had us uh, um, put into different uh, businesses along the streets that they rented, so we could have air conditioning. So they were trying to take care of us. Um, they, uh, but it was still rather hot. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm looking forward to seeing. Like, I'm very curious to see what they do with this movie because of the direction that they've gone, obviously. And I'm just, yeah. I, I just want to see a trailer for it because I'm trying to hold off judgment until mm-hmm. I see something from it. But I, I hope it does well. I mean, I've always liked the Fantastic Four. I think they're a little underrated because a lot of people don't like them because you have these. You mentioned earlier the gritty reboot. Yeah. A lot of dark, gritty superheroes when they're not that, they're right. the more lighthearted the more family friendly heroes so i'm curious to see what their take on it is. well i know some friends of mine have, have justified the previous um two films um as well you know they capture the tone which was kind of that lighthearted, right almost silly you know type of thing um I don't necessarily believe that every superhero movie has to be dark and gritty. It doesn't have to follow the Dark Knight, mm-hmm. you know, and, and be in that mold. Guardians of the Galaxy was a perfect example of that. That was love, fun, love, fun that movie. movie so much. And it was just it was a great popcorn film, and it it hit the tone. It reminded perfectly. me of Star Wars mm-hmm. in a way. And and I think the the director 
was going for that. Yeah. And uh, who, by the way, I met at Dragon Con, a very nice guy. <laughs> yeah, James Gunn. James Gunn. He was fantastic. And I worked with Chris Pratt on, on uh, Jurassic World. Had a, actually had a couple scenes with him. Nice. Um, but anyways, um, and, and he's a phenomenal guy too. Just real, real fun person. Um, but with the previous Fantastic Four movies, it just it felt too cheesy. And just they. Yes, I know that they were trying to go for a particular tone, but I, I just felt like it wasn't. They didn't go about it the right way. I just felt it wasn't good filmmaking. You know, I just I didn't like the director's choices. I, I didn't really care for. I mean, not that it was a bad movie. At least the first one. I haven't seen the second one, but the the first one just was just kind of there. Yeah. So um, with Josh Trank directing this one. Um, I think that um, it might have what, what we're looking for. Okay. But I don't know. <laughs> the casting choices are very odd. Um, they're making the characters younger than what they've always been portrayed as. Um, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it could work. It could blow up in their face. So Yeah. We'll just have to wait till the first trailer comes mm-hmm. out. Last thing I wanted to ask you. I've got to know about this Batman script that you were talking about earlier. Okay. Let me go back a little bit uh, and tell the story. Um, I I think I mentioned I was sharing an office with with Dan Myrick and some other people at Universal Studios in in Orlando. And I teamed up with uh, a buddy of mine from film school, Lee Shapiro. And we wrote a couple screenplays. And so we decided that we were going to try to pitch the scripts to Hollywood. And how we did that, as I said earlier, was using our address at Universal mm-hmm. as a means to convince them that we're for real. Because you know, 99% of the time, if you are just a writer, especially one that does not live in Los Angeles, and you call Warner Brothers, they're going to say, yeah, no, thank you, and hang up on you. But... Because we had that address, we were able to get some appointments. So we spent some time, several years actually, making trips back and forth to Los Angeles, meeting with people. We got a, a manager at one, you know, at one point for like I think like for two years. Um, she represented us. Um, everybody had read our stuff. I mean, literally every single studio, multiple times, had had read our, our materials. Unfortunately, we tend to write things that they deem uh, unmarkable <laughs> to some degree. Uh, we had From the Ashes, which was about a uh, you know, end-of-the-world scenario, a post-apocalyptic film where 90% of the world loses their eyesight. So it's not a disaster film in the, in the traditional sense, or it's not even a, like a zombie apocalypse. Um, but the main character is a, a 12-year-old mm-hmm. searching for his parents. And... One one studio said, I can see this winning an Oscar, but we aren't going to take a chance on it because how do you market a kid in that type of setting? Yeah. You know, we had a um, a comedy, which we wrote pretty much in, in response to being so depressed writing from the ashes that uh, we did a satirical film that made fun of disaster films called Sinkhole. So the whole premise was you have all of the tropes of a disaster film, all the cliches, everything that you see repeatedly made fun of, 
and the disaster is a sinkhole. It's a hole in the ground, but yet it's a disaster. And of course, being a disaster film with all the tropes, it would cost a lot of money. Right. And other than perhaps Ghostbusters uh, and maybe one or two others, it's very, very hard to mix comedy and big special effects. Even Ivan Reitman, who directed Ghostbusters, was not able to replicate that very well. Um, and he tried a couple of times, but it, you know, comedy and big budget effects is a huge gamble. And we got responses from people saying, this is the funniest thing I've ever read. Although Richard Donner's company, the woman who read it didn't quite understand it. And she said, there was absolutely no comedy in this, in this script. Absolutely no humor. Okay, then. <laughs> the same woman, when we tried to pitch From the Ashes, she cut me off and said, I don't see it. A script about blindness. She doesn't see it. Oh, man. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> so, you know, you take it for what it is. Oh, man. <laughs> we, were, we were pitching From the Ashes to this one company, and the woman that we were actually pitching it to sat there the whole time with a scowl on her face. And she had a, an assistant who looked like she, he was right out of college, and he was, like, really getting into it and just, you know, could, you know, could see it. And when we finished our pitch, the, the woman said... Okay, I've got one question. Um, why did you decide to have the end of the world caused by blindness instead of, let's say, an earthquake? <laughs> and all I could picture was we cut to a shot from space <laughs> and you see the planet shaking. <laughs> And you know, both of us were just left speechless for a little bit. And then I fielded the question and, and afterwards Lee thanked me because he said he was getting ready to tell her that she was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> so, an earthquake would destroy the world. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's the mentality in Los Angeles. Um, anyways, to make, make a very long story slightly shorter, um, Batman and Robin came out. It did. <sighs> now, both of us were huge Batman fans. And, you know, I love, absolutely love the Tim Burton films. I even enjoyed Batman Forever when it came it's, out. It's not as bad as people remember it because people think of Batman and Robin and they yeah. associate forever with it. But well, for, for what it is, it wasn't a terrible movie. It has some great lines of dialogue. Jim Carrey was fantastic yes, as the Riddler. But we, we actually spoke to Lee Batchelor, who was one of the original writers. He and his wife, right. uh, Janet, I believe, um, wrote the, the first draft before Akiva Goldsman got his hands on it and destroyed it. And he said, yeah, when I saw the movie, there were scenes that didn't make any sense that I didn't write. Like, oh, there's a car chase out of nowhere. Just suddenly we cut to a car chase. Yeah. Why? Because we need a car chase. Uh, why not? Oh, and look, the Batmobile is going up the side of a building. Why? Yeah. Why not? Why not? <laughs> so there were things in that movie that just, it was like, okay, whatever. Either Joel Schumacher said, I want to do this. And so Akiva wrote it, or he took the script and said, oh, you know what this needs? Just random stuff happening that, yeah, whatever. But, but I, 
when that movie came out, I, I enjoyed it. it. It has gotten worse for me over the years of repeated viewing. It's very hard for me to watch it now. But then Batman and Robin came out. Lee could not bring himself to see it in the theaters. And I, I unfortunately did. <clears throat> and had a mental block. I could not remember a thing about that movie. It just... I just blocked it out. And so it was released on home video, and I, I told Lee, you need to see this movie. So we rented it and watched it and had to rewind it several times <laughs> to see if what we thought we saw, we actually saw. Really <laughs> and yes, it did. <laughs> Batman really just pull out a credit card. Uh, oh, Robin crashing through a wind, a plate glass window and leaving the outline of the bat signal. I forgot about that. One. <sighs> the, that was pretty brutal. Poison Ivy's plant attacking Robin and then them reversing the film repeatedly to show the struggle with him in a vine. Oh, I mean, it was just, I, I don't even want to talk about that anymore. <laughs> the movie was, was bad. Yeah. And when we finished it, we just looked at each other and said, you know, we could come up with something better. Mm-hmm. And so we brainstormed for, I think, 15 minutes and came up with what we thought was a really good story. Um, don't want to get into the story specifics, but it basically the villain was Scarecrow. And we had some a really cool original take on him. We included the character of Man Bat in there. Mm-hmm. And made him kind of what we call a gray character where he's not a hero, he's not a villain. We don't know if he's going to become good or evil. So through the course of the story, that's kind of the crux is what's, what direction is he going to take? And we made it as a direct sequel. So Robin was a character. Um, we actually sent Robin away at the end of the, <laughs> the story. So a possible sequel to that could go back to a solo Batman um, or bring in other characters if necessary. Um, but we wanted to make it dark again. Uh, we try to keep it kind of in the tone of the Tim Burton films, but not quite as... I mean, his films were still kind of cartoony in, in some respects. and uh, But it was still more like that, but yet a standalone original right. take. And that, that was our intent. And we um, spent a couple months writing it. We did two drafts of it. Uh, we, we, contact, we actually contacted Warner Brothers before we wrote it. And uh, we had just come back from a, a trip where we had a meeting with them. And so we, we called our contact. They put us in touch with um, Tom LaSalle, who was a uh, vice president at the time. And Tom said, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And he wanted to read the script. And we said, well, it'll take us a couple months to write it, and we'll send it to you. We sent it to him, and he quit Warner Brothers. Wow. So we get a, a letter back from legal saying, we don't accept unsolicited screenplays. This is our material, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you asked for it. Yeah. <laughs> so we spent several more months trying to convince them that Tom LaSalle asked for it. He wanted to read this. So they finally said, oh, okay, I guess they must have talked to him or something. And so they accepted our submission. But by then, there was so much backlash on Batman and Robin that Warner Brothers did not know what they were going to do with that franchise. And they told us point blank, we may never do another Batman movie. 
But for now, we're just going to be sitting and letting that die down. So we kept like reminding them by sending them like toys, <laughs> send them a, a Batman and man, or I'm sorry, a, a Scarecrow Man Bat action figure in a little box with hay in it and a note saying, you know, don't they make a wonderful couple? <laughs> things like that. We'd send them uh, marketing material and we'd send them a lot of things just to, hey, remember us. And we spoke with the president uh, of Warner Brothers, Lorenzo de Bonaventura, and he said, well, you know, we are gearing up. Now, this but like two years had passed by this point. And he said, yeah, we're, we're getting ready to gear up to do another Batman movie. And we have your script. It's sitting on my desk. Okay, okay. You know, <laughs> so we're like waiting, you know, <laughs> right there on the edge of our seats, waiting to, you know. And then Jeff, Jeff Robinoff, um, who was, had taken over for Tom. He was the, the VP. Uh, he called us and he said, well, Lorenzo asked me to call you. We decided that we're going to go in a different direction. We're not going to make a direct sequel to this series. We're going to start a new series. That's where the term reboot came from. Really? Yeah. Wow. That they were rebooting the Batman series. That was the first time that term had ever been used in that context. So we were like, okay, we were disappointed. But, and he said, well, we are actually going to be adapting the graphic novel Batman Year One mm-hmm. that Frank Miller wrote. Yeah, great. And book. they had hired Frank and Darren Aronofsky to write the script. Aronofsky was going to direct. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, it's better than the other script that was floating around with Scarecrow by Mark Protasovich, who has had a very long and fruitful career as a writer <laughs> and I'm really jealous of him uh, but <laughs> but that script got rejected before ours did so ours lasted yeah. longer um, but we're like well okay if, if you have to reject us I can understand bringing Frank Miller in and Darren Aronofsky I can understand that and apparently when they turned in their first draft Warner Brothers hated it so much they fired both of them immediately and said we're not doing that <laughs> so that's what happened with yeah. it I had no idea. Yeah, they, from what I understand, went in a really weird direction with it. That was not the comic book. Because I, I read the book, and the book is really, really mm-hmm. good. So when they announced that, I was like, oh, this will be great. Yeah. And then I just kept following it and following it, and then they just announced that it was dropped, but they never said why. So. Well, they they went through another, over the last series of several years then, they they went through different projects. Um, Wolfgang Peterson mm-hmm. was attached to direct a Justice League movie yep, I remember way back that. then, which they're now finally doing. Um, then that got scrapped. Bose Jakin, who directed Remember the Titans, he was attached to do a Batman Beyond live-action adaptation of the comic book, or the, car- the car- cartoon series. That would have been interesting. That would have been cool. That went nowhere. And they, you know, each one of these projects spent like over a year in development before they canceled it. Um, I want to say there was another, another Batman project, too, that they were looking at doing. And then finally they announced Batman Begins. Um, and... Uh, before the movie came out, Lee got a hold of a copy of the script and he gave it to me and said, read this. Like, okay. And so I started reading through there and like, 
well, you know, the, the story was completely different. I was love the fact that they um, were telling the origins yeah. of of how Bruce Wayne became Batman and going back and showing his parents getting killed and having that in a dramatic format instead of just a flashback like two other movies did. But <laughs> as I'm reading through, like this scene is very familiar. Flip, 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 flip. This this scene sounds like it's from our script. Flip, flip, flip. Oh, this line of dialogue is just like one that we came up with. Oh, here's another line of dialogue that. Oh, that was from our script. <laughs> and I think I counted maybe eight or ten specific lines of dialogue that were verbatim. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, some some individual scenes in, in, in taken by themselves. You know, I mean, there's no. Uh, plagiarism that that can be yeah. claimed um but it and i and i don't want to accuse chris nolan of <laughs> ripping us off uh but it just it was very interesting that you know the wording that was very unique because we we spent a lot of time trying to have very specific dialogue not just you know things that anybody could say at any point and to hear to see that exact phrasing in another script, um, I, I'm not really sure if I, you know, should have taken offense or been kind of proud that they, you know, liked our script so much that some of it ended up yeah. <laughs> in this other screenplay. And uh, um, the the biggest thing though that, and this has nothing to do with Chris Nolan, was. Um, of the marketing material that we sent in. Lee is a graphic designer also, and he, he designed various unique bat logos. Mm-hmm. And one of them is identical to what was on the posters. Wow. So, um, that, that kind of rubs me the wrong way right there because, you know, could they have come up with it independently of us? Sure. You know, I mean that, that there is that possibility. Um, but the fact is that we did send them, that material and it ended up that was what they went with with the new design of the bat logo mm-hmm. and it's like yeah, yeah I, can, <laughs> I can understand that <laughs> but you know i i love the dark knight series i you know i think that that what what chris nolan did with with those films including dark knight rises i'm i'm a defendant of that film um i really appreciate that so um did ours get made no can you see little echoes of ours? Sure, you know. <laughs> um, the the nice thing though was a, uh, two or three years ago, um, the Independent Film Channel on their website had an article about um, the seven best unproduced Batman scripts, and ours made the list. Oh, that's awesome! So that's great. Uh, that made me feel better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's been a couple of websites that have uh, um, talked about our script, so it, it's, that's kind of cool. Yeah, that so. is awesome. That's really awesome. But that, that's our long story with the Batman stuff. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. Well, Steve, thank you very much for uh, for coming on the show. This was well, a Well, you're welcome. Well, hopefully uh, you can edit some of this down to be a you know, <laughs> usable. Oh, uh, <laughs> all, all of it staying. All of it staying. And that does it for this week's episode of the Derek Diamond Experience. Thank you once again to Steve Wise for coming on for that really fun film conversation. 
And next week, we will continue our look into the world of film with local filmmaker Bob Constance. So definitely tune in for that one. And don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter at DDiamondExp. Like us on Facebook at The Derek Diamond Experience. And you can follow me personally on Twitter at Derek underscore Diamond. And that'll do it. See you guys next week. 